Hello, and welcome to Shame Spiral. I'm Ellie Kremendahl, and my guest today is Deanne Smith. Deanne is a stand-up comedian and writer. They are so hilarious. They had me laughing throughout this whole episode. Um, They've performed on Just for Laughs. They've been on The Late Late Show. They have a half-hour special on Netflix called Gentleman Elf that you can stream right now. You have to look up Comedians of the World, and then you can find their special within that in the Canada section. If you want to see Deanne in action, you can in New York City at Union Hall on December 14th. That's real soon um, for their show, Deanarchy, which is an incredible title for a show. Um, It features Deanne and some other incredible guests. That's a monthly show. And then in the new year, they're going to be performing in Toronto and Bloomington. And you should just follow them online to stay abreast of their upcoming tour dates. Okay, so I'm sure you've noticed that my voice sounds horrible. (laughs) So I'm going to try to keep this intro as short as possible going forward. I just, I didn't want to shortchange Deanne because I'm a huge fan. I love them. And I want you to know how great they are and where you can find them. But I I won't do an elaborate shame check-in. I'll just say that I have been sick for so long. I think I've talked about it in like the last two intros. I had COVID. And then right after we got over COVID, we got this new illness from school and daycare. Last week, I totally lost my voice. Like, had full-on laryngitis and could not speak at all. I had to cancel work, a bunch of interviews. It was horrible. And so the little shame spiraling that I've been doing is again about being sick. It's like, I know that I can't control what's happening to my voice right now, what's happening to my body. Um, But there is this part of me that, that sort of feels like, well, If you took better care of yourself, you probably wouldn't be this sick. You would have bounced right back. Like this is somehow a reflection of your deficiencies. (laughs) And now everyone is witnessing it because I'm recording this intro and you can hear that I sound, I don't know, a little bit like Kathleen Turner, a little bit like Kim Kardashian, a little bit like a prepubescent boy. I don't really know. But there it is. I know that that's not rational and that there's nothing for me to feel ashamed about, but I did spiral a little bit. But here I am anyway, doing the intro because the show must go on. And being sick is not a moral failing. I think that that bears repeating. I think we could all take that in, in this capitalist hellscape as much as possible. Okay. So that's all I have for today. I talked way more than I was planning on another thing to shame spiral about, but that's for another. I'll do that on my own time. Without further ado, let's start spiraling with Deanne Smith. Shame burning in my brain Always in a frame And I've only myself to blame Shame Wishing I could forget my name And crawl back up from where I came I'm going down the spiral once again The shame spiral 
Hi, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. I am also happy and like I said, nervous. This is going to be fun. So tell me about your nervousness. Like, how do you feel knowing that we're going to be talking about shame, etc.? Well, what I'm hoping, and maybe you've done this already, but what I'm hoping is that you can also like define shame for me. Because oh, I know, I think I know what it is. But you know, like I'm, I, you know, I've read a little Brene Brown here and there. But reflecting upon this, I was like, ooh, I think I don't know if it's like shame, but I think I have a lot. I have a lot of like, I'm bad and wrong feeling all the time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I felt such an intense spike of anxiety when you asked that because I feel like I'm going to fuck it up probably because at core, I feel like I'm bad and wrong and deficient Mm -hmm. in some way. But I will (laughs) say that I feel like the easiest way to define it is that it's the feeling of I am bad. Like, it's not just that I've done something bad. Like, that's more like guilt or embarrassment. But like, because of whatever this is that I'm stewing in right now, I am bad and rotten at core. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. Well, yeah. Then I think my instinct that I am carrying that around a lot is pretty spot on. Um, (laughs) I've been I've been working on it forever, but it, it might be something that that will be worked on forever as well. I feel you. I mean, I feel like that's how could it? I don't know that you ever like get to the end of that. Well, like there's so much. I would like to think, and tell me what you think. Tell me what you think as a mom, because I would like to think that you that someone could be raised in a way that is as shame free as possible. There's probably little things true. creeping in, but there's a lot I feel like that's just changed recently in terms of how kids are brought up. That mm-hmm. I would imagine you and your partner are, uh, you know, combating a lot of like societal shame that could come at these kids. Mm-hmm. Do you think it could ever be shame-free? I don't know about shame-free because I feel like I'm so like existentially minded and I-, I feel that being a human kind of is being tortured in mm. a core way. However, mm-hmm. I think you're so right that you can kind of be set up to succeed in a way that your parents can offer you really intentionally. Like so much of my shame, I don't know about you, I would assume probably, like so much of mine stems from growing up queer and closeted and knowing that at some point, every the, all, the ways that people loved me and thought of me as good was all just going to go out the window because ultimately I was bad, you know? I mean, and then there's so many other things around that that were kind of a part of it that led to a lot of shame and Yeah, we try to kind of demonstrate to our kids, like, there's nothing about you inherently that is bad or wrong. Yeah. Including all the messy shit, you know? Yeah, like, literally the shit. I used to nanny a lot. And when I lived in Mexico, um, I volunteered at this, like, kind of an orphanage. Just there was a lot of kids there. And um, I would go in and change their diapers. And (laughs) they were rough. But I didn't want them to have any feelings about it. So I would always be like, let's make a game. How many wipes is it going to take today to clean your diaper? And I'm like, three, four, you know, Mm because I just thought there's there's all these even little moments. And that to me is one that's like very human as well. I wonder if if we would all have some kind of poop shame. Um, Oh, yeah. Just those tiny micro moments of like, am I going to make a small move here that somehow instills a sense of like my body is disgusting yeah yeah and like i even have shame about my shame um because you said you know like growing up queer for sure but i know 
that a ton of mine stems from like my family dynamic when I was growing up. And I'm also like, have not, have I not done enough therapy to like be beyond this? Like, I don't want to be keep saying the same story, you know, but it's like, there's, there's some deep rooted stuff of having like alcoholic parents that tell you you're the reason they drink. I mean, you know, it gets gets in there. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) How could that not get in there? (laughs) I know. But then it's like, we've had enough conversations. I, you know, it's like, get over it, you know, shame about shame. I know. So that like get over it voice. Yeah. Like that's such a thing that perpetuates the shame. Totally. Mm -hmm. It's like such a recursive cycle. Like how I'm, I'm like in my fourth decade of life. Like, why do I still care about what my stupid parents did? Like, I feel that in therapy sometimes still. I'm like, why am I talking about something that happened when I was 17? Right now. This is the spiral part of the shame, right? Shame spiral. Yes. This is like where it's building on itself. Definitely. Uh, Definitely. Hi, 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 hi. Do your parents, do they still drink? Uh, no. So this is fascinating. So my mom passed away uh, maybe six years ago. Um, we had a lot of good conversations. My dad's still alive. We're, we're attempting to have good conversations. Um, but I'm the youngest. They quit drinking when I went to university, which is like, oh. wow, guys, <laughs> thanks a lot. I really was the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm glad you got better, but that kind of reinforces. Yeah. yeah. So they did quit drinking, which is kind of amazing because they also never fully admitted that they had a problem. Like they didn't quit drinking oh. through AA or anything like that. They just kind of quit drinking. Mm. Just admirable. It is. I'm an AA. I've been an AA for like 13 years. And I often think about just how grateful I am that I was had long term sobriety already by the time I had kids because I would just not have been capable of being the kind of parent that I wanted to be. It was not going to be possible. I mean, I think about my parents' lives and they really, I mean, yeah, they weren't so awful. Um, They were great in a lot of ways. And they were kind of living life. Like my, they had this gorgeous garden. My dad built a gazebo for my mom in the back. They'd go out and drink like gin and tonics every night on the gazebo. I get it. Like they were, you know, in their thirties and forties, kind of having the best life they could possibly have. Um, and yeah. yeah, they drank too much. But before my mom died too, like we all have issues with my dad. And um, I like gestured at him once he was like watching tv in the in the living room and i was like listen if i had to put up with that guy i would have been sneaking wine in the garage as well like i get it <laughs> you know we like yeah we kind of bonded over that sort of stuff that's kind of nice yeah it was good it was really good yeah how many siblings do you have two i was about to say just two um and they're they're significantly older than me when we were kids. Now now that age oh. difference is kind of erased, but um, they were eleven and seven when I was born. Um, mm. So I, like the second half of my childhood was kind of like I was an only child. And I have to te- tell you that the <laughs> refrains of "you are an accident" um, don't help with the feeling oh, of bad yeah. <laughs> with bad and wrong. <laughs> now was that implicit or explicitly said to you? Explicitly You're said to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. God. I mean, the problem is a lot of this stuff also like came directly from my sister, which makes a lot of sense because she was seven when I was born, right? Mm. So she's seven when I'm born. She's becoming aware, I think, of the pat- fact that like, oh, mom and dad drink. Like they're different. They're different at night than they are during the day. Mm-hmm. And um, 
there's this new baby on the scene and it's probably because of the new baby <laughs> that these guys are drinking all the time. <laughs> so Lord. there was a lot of like, you're a mistake and you're why mom and dad drink. <laughs> oh um, my God. Yeah. And now you're, also, a, now you're a comedian. I mean, it all worked sense. out, right? It all worked <laughs> yeah. out. I can't That's blame like, anybody. That, that is sort of just, it's like you're kind of given this these cards that you're then you're it's like kind of like starting off at a deficit and you have to sort of m- try to move forward from there because if those are the building blocks as you're developing in the formative years like yeah. who you are and your sense of worth and your sense of worth is mixed with like I'm here but not necessarily because I was wanted I just kind of <laughs> happened to be here better earn it better earn it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I better prove my worth somehow. Yeah. yeah. And there is like a superpower to um I mean there's really something to be said for being able to like read the delicate energy of the room, know what it needs and be compelled to change it into something positive and joyful for everybody around. It's uh, you know, possibly not ideal in real life, but in comedy it really fucking works. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, I mean that is such a trauma response. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's so it's like what you said is such a perfect definition of being a parentified child. Like have you heard that term? <laughs> I've heard the term. I don't know that it necessarily applies to me, but I'll I'll give it to you that that particular example was it was a good definition. Yeah. Yeah, just like kind of you got to suss out what everybody else needs and take care of it. And it's almost like that's what your need becomes is taking care of everybody else's needs. Yeah. And At least hard. emotionally, I would say that. Like, emotionally. Definitely not parentified in, in other ways, but I did take mm. it upon myself to change the mood of a room. Yeah. 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 Now you do that professionally in like an adaptive, <laughs> yeah. constructive, joyful way, though, which is really cool. I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Um okay, wait. Let's move on to the shame game, which okay. is a little game we play where I'm going to present you with some scenarios and you get to choose which scenario would be more likely to evoke in you a bigger shame spiral. I'm excited. So it's kind of like it's a given that both would be likely to evoke some shame, so the one that would really like destroy you. And I am also I'll also pick Okay, so here's the first one. And I have to tell you that I was really excited to think of this one because, you know, I, a lot of the comedians that I interview are like so much younger than me just because comedy. And right. I feel like you and I are like of the same generation. You're right. And I was like, ooh, I can, this will mean something to you. <laughs> okay, all right, let's find out. <laughs> okay, so it's 1997. Uh huh. And one of your parents <laughs> logs in to like, let's just say the family desktop computer. Okay. Mm-hmm, Did you have mm-hmm. one of those? Yeah. Well, okay. we would have if my dad shared his computer, but I get the idea. <laughs> you get the idea. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they log into the family computer and up pops a like lesbian chat Uh-oh. room that Uh-oh. you had been engaging in and forgot to cancel out with the whole conversation that you've been just having and let's just say let's just say it was some like light cyber sex going on wow okay, okay so that's number one okay and who sees it? the whole family or one of the parents 
One of the parents. Okay. One of the parents. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Or second scenario is now present day accidentally texting. Your dad is still alive. You said he is still alive. Accidentally texting your dad a sexy picture of yourself meant to your girlfriend. <laughs> Wow, this is a really good one. Holy cow. Um, absolutely, the second scenario would feel worse to me on every mm-hmm. level. Um, <laughs> yeah, what a nightmare. What a nightmare. And I, I, my dad doesn't text, thank God. Um, he barely knows. He used to be, he used to be well advanced with computer stuff and then kind of lost it somewhere. Um, what he does do, however, is send me emails from my mom's account because he doesn't have his own but he only writes in all caps and he it's only in the subject line so it's an absolute nightmare i get like emails from my dead mom that's like hey d how you doing hope you're good like, it's like very, very oh my intense. god um but if he did text and i sent him a sexy like it's like it's hard enough for me to send a sexy picture of myself to the person i intend it for yeah to my dad yeah no so what would the spiral look like like what makes that worse than you know imagining yourself at like 17 having that happen then well it's it just feels more i don't know if the word is visceral it's it just feels more immediate you know like a photo than words on a screen yes um you could also always hope that like, oh, maybe they didn't like read the whole chat or they just kind of saw it or whatever. Like you would hope that something would kick in maybe for the parents uh, that didn't they didn't they don't want to pour over every word of what's going on there. Like they get the gist um, yeah. and a photo is just like, bah, here it is. You yeah. can maybe not want to see it, but you've seen it already. It's you've too seen late. it. What about you in this scenario? I find this one really hard. I mean, I think that. Like the sh- when I picture the the teenaged one happening, the shame I feel is so acute that it makes mm-hmm. me want to like puke. But I feel <laughs> similarly about the second option. Yeah. But it also for me, it depends on who I sent it to. Like if I sent it to my mom, I would be so humiliated, but I would get over it. Mm-hmm. If I sent it to my dad, I feel I would never recover. <laughs> no, so- no one would ever recover <laughs> is the problem. <laughs> no. Yeah. So probably the second one too. Probably the second one. Oh man. But the yeah. first one would be so bad. Oh. Yeah. That was always terrifying. Like the fam the whole having a family computer. These kids today, they don't know. They don't know the terror. I know. Yeah, it's really scary. Wow. Okay. That was horrifying. Okay. <laughs> that I was know. like it didn't happen. I it's like I'm left, you know when you have a bad dream and you're left with like emotions from the dream. That's how yeah. I feel right now. Like just <laughs> reminding myself, shake it off. This didn't actually happen. I know. I feel anxious too. Like I feel sometimes <laughs> I, I'm kind of like masochistic and sadistic because I I do that. Like I'm asking people these questions and I'm also putting myself through them. It's totally I, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm I'm doing it. Is there something to be said for like shame resilience? Maybe we're building shame resilience. I think so. I think there's something that does feel like exposure therapy. Like mm-hmm. I just want to like confront it not be afraid of it maybe i'm sort of trying to control that anxiety thing where you're like if i can just inhabit 
the worst thing that could ever happen, I'll be able to manage it better if it happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But not to psychoanalyze myself too much, but (laughs) there's probably something of that. I also just am like obsessed with juicy conversation. And so I just, I don't know. I enjoy it. Okay, here's the next one. So you're having a bad day and you're on the subway and a kid bumps into you and you would normally be let's just say like a kind person about it, but you're just having like a really shit day. So you act kind of like a dick to the kid about it. And then that kid's mom is right there, which you didn't realize. I know this is kind of elaborate. And then the mom, (laughs) the mom is like, what's wrong with you? Like, why would you talk to my kid like that? Okay. And she's kind of right. Like you really said what you said. Okay. Second scenario same day at on the subway same bad mood an adult bumps into you this time and you have a similar reaction where you're just a dick about it and then you're on your way to a job interview that you really care about you get to the job interview and the person you were a dick to is <laughs> wow okay shame that's interesting okay i think the second scenario but because in the first scenario what i actually really like about it and i would hope that i would never be addicted to anybody that bumped into me but um what i like about it is i know that i would immediately feel bad i i wouldn't get defensive if the mom brought something up to me and then at the very least i would be like oh at the very least this is an opportunity to model for this child how to apologize and take accountability and i've oh, i've got an opportunity to redeem myself uh whether or not you know the mom accepts the apology or the kid accepts the apology, but there's, there's a chance there. Um, and in the second scenario, I haven't apologized. I don't care. I'm getting on with my day. This, this Yahoo, this complete stranger to me, I don't, this anonymous nobody, I don't care about him. And then it's, it's like, I don't care about him or them or her until they matter to me. That sucks. That really, that feels really bad. I know. What would you feel like when you got to that interview? Like, what would your spiral look like? It's so interesting because I really do try to avoid these scenarios. I'm going to tell you a quick anecdote of where I think I learned my lesson or was just grateful. I was on a plane, getting onto a plane, and this guy was like, you know, putting his baggage in the overhead or whatever and was like, oh, sorry, sorry. And I, one of my pet peeves is when people get upset on planes, like about anything. It's like, come on guys we're all in the same we all have we're all pretty much in the same exact moment right now we all want to get somewhere we're all going from somewhere else everybody feels hurried no one necessarily wants to be like here in this part of it we're all the same so anyway i I said to that guy uh oh yeah don't worry about it i put something like that i said don't worry about it we're all we're all going to the same place i got time whatever then later i show up where i'm going which was like this uh festival where i was recording something for tv and he turned out to be like the executive producer of the whole thing. So I met him backstage. He's one of the guys like looking at all the camera angles. And he was like, oh, hey, we met on the plane. That was so um, nice. You you said, you know, whatever. And I was like, Whew. like, there wasn't really a version of me that would have been like, ah, fuck you, dude. But I was like, this is a really good example of kind of why to never be like that if you can help yeah. it. Um, yeah. So I've had the opposite. So I, it's really hard to imagine that that would be me. But what I, I don't know. I would just immediately apologize. I don't know that I would go into too much shame about it. 
I, I and I'm wondering if because we started this by me telling you I think I feel shame a lot about other things <laughs> that it's almost it would almost be a relief to feel shame over like an action that I did that I have control over mm. because then that's not even that shameful you're like oh yeah that sucked and then you just go well I won't do that again right let me learn from that that's like something I can control it's not just like right. um being bad and wrong. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's the potential for repair and restorative justice restorative justice (laughs) um what about you with these scenarios these are rough ones these are really bad ones and i'll tell you i don't think about what i'll say like when i write them down um oh this is fun uh you know it's interesting because i think actually i think the first one would give me more shame, maybe in part because I'm a parent and it's like my worst nightmare to make a child feel bad, you know, like feel mm-hmm. sh- feel like they've done a terrible thing by bumping into me or like just, no, that's not even it. It's that it would make me feel like I'm a despicably bad person for speaking that way to a child. And I've been found mm-hmm. out to be that. I think the second one would make me feel more just like, I think the thing I would feel so upset about is that I had like ruined something. Like I had like fucked up this mm-hmm. job opportunity. It would feel more like a selfish scrambling that is, I don't know. I think the actual shame would be hotter in the, in the former. I think you're probably right. I've been out of like the traditional work world forever. So it's like, I can't, I, it's yeah. even hard for me to imagine going to a job interview. <laughs> I'm like, wait, why? Um, but you're making me realize, like, I, I, I'm wondering now. I got, so, now I got a lot to think about. I'm wondering if um, I am preemptively kind to strangers as a defense against feeling the I am just inherently bad. Mm. It's like, of course not, because look at, look at, yeah, look how I'm treating everybody around me. It's cool, right? I'm good. Everything's good. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm proving your worth with preemptively without being yeah. asked or having it required. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which that is really I mean, I, I feel like I relate to that and I feel like that could really stem from that like core sense of that there's not an assumption. There's just not a baseline <laughs> of like of course needing I'm to good. earn it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get I totally get that. Okay, let's do the last question. So this is another workplace one, but let's say, okay, so let's say it's your first job at, like you're writing for a TV, a TV show. Okay. 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 So you can imagine yourself. It's like, sure. In person, it's, it's a writer's room. You are so excited to be there and you have diarrhea and you, (laughs) and you, and the toilet overflows. There's no plunger. And your shit and like the shit water, like fully just start flooding the bathroom. And there's, you got to do something about it. It's your first day. You're a staff writer. So, okay. (laughs) Or you're on a plane in the middle seat, like in coach, regular people plane, and you shit your pants and there's still another like hour of your flight. How did I shit my pants? <laughs> because you had diarrhea. Like it was, you could not help it. Wow. Okay. 
I, they know I've shit my pants. I don't know where the rest of this is going. You're saying there's still another hour. That's the end of that scenario? There's still another hour. That's the I mean, you can go to the okay. bathroom and you can like throw out your underwear, but I'm pretty sure it got on your pants. And you yeah. also, because you're in the middle, you have to like get out with ass <laughs> facing the other person. These are all so bad. Um, I prefer the second scenario because hopefully these people are strangers to me. Um, and that's it. I mean, the first scenario, you're forever known as that person, you know, hopefully the one thing I really love about comedy is that it's very forgiving and hopefully that would, uh, you know, expand to all scenarios. It's like, if you're in a room with a bunch of writers, like, first of all, they get it, you know, like, yeah, hopefully it could just be like a fun, goofy, silly thing, disgusting thing that happened. Um, and everybody would understand, like, of course you feel horrible about it. Um, but you have to see those people every day again, forever. And they're possibly yeah. making fun of you about that forever. Yeah. Second scenario, please. So you'd prefer, so that the work scenario would make you spiral more. Yes. And here I am saying, I think I'm filled with shame all the time. And n neither of these bring great shame to me just because I'm like, no, I feel that everyone around me would be horrified for me and imagine them th themselves mm. in that scenario. So I think there would be like a general level of like, thank God it wasn't me at least, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like yeah. if not care, people are like, Oh God, that can't be good. Um, That's I mean, really interesting. my coworkers don't have to go into the toilet. Like I'd try to find, you know, the super or the janitor, whoever's in charge of the toilet, that's true. They don't have to see it. Yeah. Yeah. It won't be they, the showrunner going in there. They will probably know about it. They will know about it. Yeah. You know, oh, that's also interesting what you're saying. I mean, it, it makes me think about how it's like, well, first of all, what you're saying about people feeling bad for you in those scenarios, I, I, that makes total sense. It's like there's a protective element to that and that it might evoke some like some pathos and like... <laughs> A kind of like it, like I feel good because that's not me, and that it's it's more comfortable to be like the victim in that scenario. I think so. Yeah. yeah. If someone shit their pants next to me on an airplane, um, I would be feeling really disgusted, uh, and also really, I think, like compassionate towards this person. Yeah. You know, you'd be like, just do anything you can to help them feel okay about this because it's. Although, although there would be judgment if like if it was like a young frat guy and i thought he just shit his pants because he got super drunk the night before i'd be definitely be judging him but if it was another yep. scenario yeah totally i just had that same thought when you said that um you know you would feel compassion i was like oh deanne's such a good person but then i realized i would too but it does depend on the context of yeah. who who it seems like that person is. If they're already someone I've categorized in my mind as an asshole, then I would just be filled with rage that they had shit themselves. And I yeah, had it's to kind of like subjected to it. Is it their fault that they shit themselves? That's what right. I would be wondering. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And it's like if if they're already a sort of person that fit into a category in your mind of like you are the problem, then of course yeah. it's their fault. You know? I think the the work one would make me spiral more. No, no. 
No, the plane would. No, I don't know. (laughs) They're both really bad. I think I like also, I like in the airplane that they'll never see me again. Like that I really appreciate. I think I would feel so much shame though, that they had to be subjected to the stink. And like, I didn't think about the stink for an hour. Like I would feel so guilty about that. And in the comedy room, <laughs> like it's I feel like it's a fair assumption that everyone would think it was hilarious and yeah. it could become like a really funny thing that you laugh about. Wow. I don't know. I also feel like on the plane you're giving the um what are they called? Flight attendants. I'm like, they're not called stewards. They're not called waiters. <laughs> Flight <laughs> attendants. Um, you're giving them a story um, and an opportunity to do something out of the ordinary. Because I would ask them, like, I guess there's not towels up there, but I, I feel that I would throw away my whole bottom half of whatever I was wearing and oh, just too. beg someone for something to cover me until I got to my next spot. Yeah. Like, do you have any spare flight attendant pants i could yeah. totally see myself asking for that in desperation i'll, I'll venmo you for these leggings immediately <laughs> i yeah. just ship my pants <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. okay okay let's move on so if your shame was concretized into like an animal a kind of creature oh. or presence an entity what comes to your mind Hmm. Okay. Um, well, what comes to my mind is what comes to my mind for a lot of quote negative emotions, but it's um uh like black marker scribbles. Mm. Like disembodied black marker scribbles, like the actual sort of. Oh yeah. Did you say like an entity? Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, whatever came comes to you is valid. I'm just want. I want to really understand. Like, is it the yeah. of the scribbles on a piece of paper or something, or is it yeah. someone scribbling? <laughs> That's okay, what I picture. Know. Oh no. Okay, so I guess picture scribbles, and then if it was like a Pixar movie, and the scribbles are like 3D. Ooh. Mm-hmm. They can have they can have little eyes, and then be. They're always like scribbling. Always mm-hmm. scribbling. <laughs> yeah you know what that brings up for me is i feel like a memory of being in junior high or something and writing down mm. something in my journal that i found <gasps> especially shameful and then scribbling it out oh my you god know? you're so right i hadn't thought about that i used to be real dramatic and burn my journals mm. i would light them a fire <laughs> now of Where course i wish do- i could read them <laughs> um, Where did you do it yeah, we grew up a little country, so there's like a fire pit in the backyard. Okay. Where did you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York, a tiny town called Endicott, New York. Um, Endicott. What not part of from, upstate is that in? Yeah. So if you've uh, driven to Binghamton, Binghamton would be the nearest big city. And then it's also not too far from Ithaca. It's about 45 minutes from Ithaca. Oh, okay. Okay. Do you live in the city now? I do. do in- yeah. yeah. Where do you live? I just moved in October to a lovely little spot in Windsor Terrace. That's where I live. Shut up. Really? Yes. And it's my favorite neighborhood I've ever lived in the city. What about you? Do you like it? I love it. I've only ever lived in Astoria, which I did love, and Bushwick, which I did love. But this is this is something really special. 
You know what? This is where middle-aged queers go to die. <laughs> it feels that way. It feels I'm that so way. happy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We, well, we, I'm so curious about where you live, but we can talk about it offline. Yeah. <laughs> like where what is our neighbors? That would be incredible. Because it's a teeny neighborhood. Yeah. It's really small. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Awesome. Um, okay. Actually, let's go into your shame story. So I asked you to bring a story from your past that evoked okay. a, a big shape spiral. And I'm very excited okay. to hear what it is. Oh, wait, right. there's something I want to tell yes. you before Uh-oh. you say it, which is that I was watching your um, Netflix special uh, this morning. Oh, yeah. I died listening to the story about the the waxing. <laughs> and for anyone who hasn't heard it, like Dan tells one of the funniest fucking stories I'd ever heard in my life. I like spit out my coffee about being non-consensually waxed at a salon. I love it. It's so good. I mean, it's so funny and great, but also it is such a shame story. And when I was listening to it, I was like, oh my God, now I'm even more more excited to to have you on because I feel like you are so you're familiar. <laughs> with, with, with processing your shame so yeah i just wanted to tell you that oh that's incredible thank you for telling me that and for anyone who hasn't seen it i was i would say um you have to look up comedians of the world on netflix i'm quite proud of that little special it came out in 2018 um but you can't search my name about it which which stinks you have to search comedians of the world and then go to canada oh that's annoying yeah, yeah yeah um Oh, yeah. that's great. I'm, I'm Wait, glad before that you... we move on, before we move yeah. on from it, I also just want to say like you, sh- I'm so glad to hear you feel proud of it because it is so tight. Like it is just every second of it is just so solid and on point and fucking hilarious. Like I just, I just loved it so much. Oh, genuinely. thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I can accept this. I can accept this, which is new. Um, I put a lot of work into that and I, I just did it. And then, um, I rewatched it because I I taped a special in twenty, the summer of twenty twenty one. This one I'm proud of the concept and of having done it at all, but it's not quite as tight. It was a show about relationships to an audience that included four of my exes. Um, but yeah, yeah, thank you for that for that face. Um, and but I didn't have a chance to like run it anywhere because it was twenty twenty one, and I didn't yeah. do comedy in twenty twenty. I barely did comedy in twenty twenty one, so. In order to prepare for that, I rewatched the Netflix one. Like, you can do this. You've done specials before. You got this. And then I was like, I hadn't seen it in years. And I was like, oh, man, this is actually good. Like, so mm-hmm. I agree with you. I agree with you that's good. And it's uh, fun for me to say that because this is like kind of new for me to feel that. I love um, that. I love yeah, that. Yeah. So thank you. Um, yeah. And I'm also stalling from telling you the story because Let's this he- is, well, I, this is real. That's totally my fault because I, I really wanted to gu- make sure we got to gush about your work a little bit Oof. but now it's time it's time let's do okay it. okay so this is very real um i have attempted to tell this story on stage it was like 10 years ago though in a show i did with a friend called horrible things um and i never really got it down so this is this is not a jokey story it's just truly traumatic and bad and i'm hoping we can work through it a little bit together okay so okay, i'm 9 ish I'm at, I think I, I think I had to be like nine. I'm at Girl Scout camp. Um, we've slept over for a few nights. Uh, there's a pond there with frogs. And this might be the first time that I really got to know frogs. Um, okay. Like we would go down to the pond and see the frogs. And it was like tadpole season. So that was like very exciting too. There was, you could see um, 
like tadpoles swimming around. And I just loved it. And I genuinely loved it. But I think there was this also this other part of me that was um, self-conscious in a way that was like, oh, look at me being a tomboy out in nature, like loving frogs, you know, like, yeah, yeah this is me now. <laughs> so I'm like loving these frogs. Um, and I just love to go down to the pond and hang out with these frogs. And then one day I picked one up. I feel like I had a special relationship with this frog, but I don't know if that's just the coloring of my memory or or how I would know the same frog day after day. So it might've just been one day that I was like, this is my frog, you know? So I picked up this frog, took her away from, from where she was and was just carrying her around. And then at some point I noticed that she started to get a bit dry and I'm like, well, I gotta, I gotta moisten her up. <laughs> so moisten her up. There was a bucket. I, I, I there was a bucket of water, um, like in the middle of this like grassy field area. So I was like, yeah, I'll just like put her in this water. So I dropped her in the water and she was immediately like scrambling to get out. And I was like, oh no, no. So I reach in the water to get her out and I find out that it's like boiling hot water. <gasps> I know. It's not boiling and it's not steaming, but it is too hot for a frog to be in. And it is so hot, in fact, that it like burns my hands trying to get her out. So that I end up just spilling over the whole bucket of water. This frog is not in good shape. I don't remember exactly what it was like feeling like in this moment. Um, but I just like ran, I was by myself, just like ran, put it in the pond and was obviously feeling horrible that I like killed this frog. The worst part is it gets slightly worse. Oh my like, God. Oh man, I'm feeling it even now that I'm telling you, cause I just folded all of this in myself. You know, it's like, I'm very bad and wrong. And then I'm obviously so bad and wrong that I just like kill another creature that I was trying to love. Um, and I just folded it in myself. Wasn't going to tell anybody. Later, some friends were like fishing at the pond and they reeled in this stiff, dead frog. Oh. Might not have been the same frog. Probably was the same frog. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, what's this? So there's so much going on there because there's the dead frog coming back. There's also the um, spilled over water, which I don't know, the, the guides were preparing for something, lunch or something, right? So what happened to this bucket of water? Oh, oh I don't know. Um and that was the day we got picked up. And the thing that makes me laugh about it as an adult is remembering going home. Must have been a Sunday. So I was, um, got the like colorful cartoon section out of the paper. And I remember sitting on the couch in the family room looking at the comics. And there was just this new cloud over me and childhood and life and innocence and everything. I just remember reading these comics going, it's just not the same anymore. I don't think I'll ever feel the sense of like innocence and joy that I felt just last week reading these comics. It's, it's gone now. It's oh gone. my God. Yeah. That's a rough one. It's really bad. It's really bad. You know, and, and that last bit that you described is so profound actually, because it's kind of what it, it I feel like that's one of the signature ways that trauma like I think this this really does sound like it was traumatic because it created a before and after for you in this really discernible way. It's like I don't like what yeah. trauma does. It, it was all Calvin and Hobbes after that. It was the only comic I could enjoy. <laughs> and and that's kind of wild that like I mean it speaks to the severity of the the impact of the experience on you because it's like you were growing up in an alcoholic 
family dynamic, but it was the the killing of the frog that <laughs> made you feel like you could no longer sort of yes and it all came back up for me about six years ago uh, i'm gesturing over here because my dog is sleeping in a little bed over here i got a dog little five pound chihuahua you know super tiny quite delicate and of course there's like issues with there's always going to be issues with her safety and you need to like look out for her in a way that you don't need to look out for other dogs but i was like so anxious like, I didn't go on anti-anxiety meds, even though I probably needed them, until I got her, because it was beyond, beyond controllable. And oh, But part yeah. of it was, like, I just had the sense that I was going to, like, accidentally kill her. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why would I think that? <laughs> and I was like, oh, because sometimes I do accidentally kill things that I, I love. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, did the frog have a name? Like... <laughs> What? I just well, what I didn't expect was you just go like, oh god, is this the, is this the heaviest story anyone's brought to you so far? I'm trying to think. Yes, I think so. Or okay, well, I took you. I took it seriously. I was like, I got a story about shame. Let me bring it. I love that. No, I really, okay. I really appreciate that, and it's so, um, it's so real. Like the the. <laughs> way that that shifted your experience of you and of life is really like oh, no. that's really honest and this is even deeper than i thought oh no and it's sad it's sad. what makes me feel so sad about it is that it was so accidental like it you loved that frog i did and like you would never have wanted to do that to the frog and what you said about like if I try to love something, I'm just going to kill it. Like, that sounds like a fucking trauma schema. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Like, I'm I'm recognizing that more and more, you know. There's a reason There's a reason I had to comb through past relationships and try to, like, sort that out with myself, like, with the special. It's like, yeah, yeah. And yeah. like you said, middle age, we are at a time where it makes sense to look back on what has happened so far. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I really appreciate you sharing that story. It's really, that's just like so fucked up that that happened. I can't, I had such a like visceral feeling of despair and panic when, when you revealed that the water was boiling. Like, Oh no, it's, it sucked pretty bad. Um, but what I think what's interesting, or maybe I don't think, cause here I am, you know, laughing a lot. And like, Whoa. I don't think this is armor. I think I've moved pretty far with this where like, I can be the voice of adult reason to that little child self. I, I mean, I never told anyone about it. And I only started telling like other people a few years ago when I was trying to work on that story as a joke, which I, I never really panned out. But um, I can see now that like, if I had spoken to my mom, I think I would have been met with what you just said, like a compassionate response and like a Obviously, you didn't mean to do that and all that. I just couldn't tell anybody about it because it was too big. How many years? How many years did you hold it? I mean, I was nine and then <laughs> probably like more than 20. <laughs> Definitely more than 20. <laughs> more than 20? <laughs> For sure. What? what? Okay. I have to know. Like, <laughs> what was Whoa. it like? What was it like? the first time you shared it and who was that first person that you got to, sh that you decided to share it with? That's a really good question. 
I mean, it might have been the friend that I was doing that show Horrible Things with, my friend Leland. But I wouldn't have been able to even begin to share it if I hadn't like dealt with it to some degree. You know? Yeah. You're also reminding me, though, I mean, since we already talked about alcoholic stuff, to me, it doesn't seem like a big deal that I held it for 20 years because I held a lot of really like wrong beliefs about myself and my childhood forever because I just believed them to be true. Like the sky is blue. You don't double check the sky is blue with anybody. We all just agree that the sky is blue. So I was literally 28 before I was talking to my mom. And this was huge. This was a huge turning point. I'm so glad that we had this conversation. I threw it out casually. Like I didn't understand really what I was saying, but I was like, oh yeah. And like, and when you started drinking when I was born or we started drinking because I was born or whatever, I just like threw it out. And my, my mom was like, Oh, slow down a minute. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? That's not why I drank or whatever, but I truly just believed it so much until 28, which is pretty late to be holding on to that. So the fact yeah. that I tucked, tucked that little frog story away, it's almost, almost nothing. <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I drive people to, to drink and I kill things I love. Uh, what else? <laughs> what else do we need to know? Oh my God. So relatable. Ooh, okay. I feel like I'm releasing a lot of tension in my body through t- telling you this. This is good. Does it feel good? I think so. I'm, I'm like, I'm recognizing that like, I think I've shed a little bit of like muscular tension right now. Just that, a tiny bit. There, there was a little bit of like, you killed a frog hanging on in my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, totally. Like, you don't notice in the moment in a meta way that you're you're holding things and you're putting them in the cellar. And you're like, well, the cellar door doesn't open. Like, once you go, once it goes down there, like, that's for <laughs> yeah. keeps. Yeah. And it is really kind of, I think it's like really, um, transformative as an adult especially like as you go through your adulthood starting to realize that you can open it you can share it with people and every time you do like i feel like it's very all very cliche what i'm saying but that i do think it makes your existence lighter and yeah i mean the truest truths are cliche that's that's the interesting thing sometimes you stumble upon these nuggets and you're like oh my gosh this is so true and they're like wait a minute i saw that written in cursive when home goods you know (laughs) like Mm -hmm. on a piece of driftwood but sometimes this stuff is true yep yep yeah it's all really about you know living laughing loving (laughs) and it really is about living laughing and loving um (laughs) fighting and fucking (laughs) (laughs) now we're in the word theme song um (laughs) this is only tangentially related but i feel compelled to say it because it is such a cute childhood memory to me and again one of these things that's like, you just take it for granted. My friend Lisa in her backyard had, there was like this door. When you talked about the cellar door, this is what reminded me of it. So this was, it was in her backyard. It wasn't attached to the house. So I don't fully understand what it was, but it was a door, like a proper door. And then there was like some, like a little ladder. If you peek down a little ladder that went, and I don't know if it was like a storm cellar or an atomic shelter, or I don't know what it was, but I was like five when we met. Um, and she was like, oh, yeah, that's the door to hell, which she fully believed that the door to hell was in her backyard. Because <laughs> when you're little, if someone's told you about hell and it's underground and then there's like a door that goes underground, you're like, well, that goes to hell, I guess. 
And so uh-huh. I was like, oh, yeah, the door to hell. So we just like our, had our whole childhoods believing that the door to hell was in Lisa's backyard. And it wasn't particularly traumatic, as I remember. It was just like, and there it is, the door to hell. <laughs> like That did not feel traumatic? Not necessarily. Like, I wasn't, I don't remember being like scared of hell or anything. I, we, I didn't grow up like very religious. Like, I knew okay. about the concept of hell. Um but That's I didn't I feel like I didn't feel menaced by Satan or okay. or Jesus or anybody really. Yeah, because that wouldn't have meant anything to me growing up because I grew up Jewish and so hell. Like I was always like hell is a really yeah. You would be like there is really no lie that people yeah. threaten threaten Christian children with. But if I could imagine if you did really believe in hell, that is sounds incredibly terrifying. I mean, we didn't play too close to it. I can tell you that. (laughs) And we didn't like go down there, but we were just like, oh, there it is. The door to hell. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe in a way it's a little less scary if it's concretized. Like, because the the places your imagination can go are so much worse Mm. often than the real concrete thing. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because it's like, yeah, there's the door to hell. Let's just not open it. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm. Very interesting. Um, okay, so what was I just going to ask you? I just have such bad ADHD, and it's like my Achilles heel with this podcast. Yeah, I think uh, I do too. You do too. I, I mean, I must. It's completely undiagnosed, but especially recently, like in the past month, I've had four separate people who have ADHD tell me I have ADHD. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I believe you. Oh, you probably do then. Yeah. Looks that way. It looks that way. I didn't get diagnosed till I was 36. And I'll just tell mm. you quickly, like it totally changed my life getting that diagnosis. Uh-oh. Maybe I should do it then. You know what? I mean, it might be because- Are you on meds? I am. And yeah. it that changed my life. But I'll tell you that in a way, even more than the meds, what changed my life is that, and and related to shame, but it's like, I so many things that I thought were just- really wrong and broken about me were were literally just like undiagnosed anxiety and OCD and ADHD. Like yeah. Once I saw it, I was like, this is kind of revolutionary in terms of my sense of self, you know. Yeah. I, I could maybe get that diagnosis, but I feel like I've kind of landed there already just with like mm-hmm. understanding that these things that I thought were wrong are just like a different way my brain is structured. Yeah. Like, I just, I, and you know what? I had so many, actually, like, proud of all the coping mechanisms I had before I even realized. Like, um, visual reminders are a huge thing for me. And I didn't know that that's what it was or anything. I just knew that, like, if I want to do anything every day, I need to see it or I'm going to completely yeah. forget about it. And I had this hack for taking vitamins, which is that I only take, like, gummy vitamins because. Me too. Um, well, the reason I do it is because I know that every day I will crave candy and I'll go, I don't have any candy. I have gummy vitamins and then I'll take a gummy vitamin. So I'll never miss one because every day I'm going to want candy. But if they're just vitamins, I absolutely forget about them. Okay. I, I, I could not relate more. I, I do the same really? hack because, yeah, because I love candy um, and I will never take a vitamin, but I will eat like a sour candy. So yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. You have do, do you have yourself. any other... Do you have any other like uh, hacks to share with me that have been yeah. revolutionary for ADHD you? ADHD hacks. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, yeah, like I had developed similarly like a lot of coping strategies to sort of su- try to succeed without meds for like so many years. Now I don't have to use them as hard, which is amazing. But 
I have to make like every day a visual list of the mm-hmm. things that I hope to accomplish. Yeah. And then ra- rarely do I accomplish most of the things, but I, if I, if it doesn't exist on a paper, like in my phone doesn't count, it has to be a piece of paper. Um, I won't, cannot do it. And I have to write that list within the first like hour that I wake up or the day is sort of a wash. I'm completely (laughs) with you. I totally understand that. Sometimes I do it the night before to kind of have a goal for the day. But absolutely, if that that is not there within, for me, probably 10 minutes of waking up, forget about it. I'm chilling that day. Me and Rudy, my dog, we're going to the park. You know, I I have no care in the world. I apparently have nothing to get done today except hang out. Do you know what I call that 10 minutes? I call it the zone of possibility. (laughs) And and if I, if, if that, zone passes it is literally a wrap like i'm yeah i'm done the day is done so yeah that's and incredible. my uh, my only i'll give you my one other like which i feel like so many writers do this but in case you haven't encountered it my favorite writing adhd hack is setting a timer on my phone for 20 minutes and then i have to write for those 20 minutes and then when the 20 minutes is over i get to set a timer for 20 minutes of nothing and then Ooh. i just try to repeat that as much as I want, the timer really makes a difference because you're like, I'm only stuck in this productivity for 10 for 20 minutes and then I'm free. Okay. Okay. I haven't, I've known about the timer thing for a while and I've never really done it. But the way that I've gotten closer to the timer is I found a um like an antique timer, kitchen timer thing. And I was like, oh. now that I have the timer, I'm closer to doing that. Because the phone oh is not God. helpful to me. I'll get lost in the phone. Yeah. Well, you have to have an app. I have an app called Opal. I guess I do have a lot of hacks. Okay, this is good. I I have an app called Opal that disables all of your apps on your phone. And you can say like why you want to disable it. So like, I I really just do this for writing. So I'll be like, I want to write for the next two hours. And then I forget, of course, that I set it. But then I go to try to go on to like Instagram and Opal pops up and says basically like, no, you're supposed to be writing. We blocked it. And then and then if you want to like disobey Opal slash yourself, you have to go through a whole step to turn it off. So I feel like what that does for me is it makes me pause and think like, do I really want to look at Instagram or should I keep writing? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm going to I'm definitely going to download this app. This is okay. Love it. Um, okay, so let, let me ask you this as we're wrapping up. Was there anything that you said um, or did just while we were talking that made you have like a mini shame spiral in the moment or that you think might later when you sort of debrief with yourself our conversation? Yes. Um, what is so fascinating to me about in, um, engaging with the the idea of shame is that, like I said, I thought I had a lot of it. And yet I think Recently, I've become more and more like forgiving with myself. So I don't think anything that happens is going to turn into full blown shame. Um, mm. I will say that we were having mic issues. Um, there was a hum that's probably on my end. There was like, <laughs> there was some static. I was feeling bad about that. And like, I should be better at audio stuff. But also like, well, I'm doing the best I can. I did have a sense of I'm doing the best I can, which is not oh. bad. And I'm not necessarily worried about it, but I could be worried that I've brought you the heaviest story that you've gotten so far. Oh my God, no. But you don't feel ashamed about it. You're just maybe slightly worried. 
Yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm kind of back to where I was at the beginning of the podcast. Is is it's possible that I don't know the definition of shame, or that it is so? It's hard to say. It's like on one hand, I feel like it's so pervasive that I feel it all the time that I don't really feel it, or that it doesn't mm-hmm. spike. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I feel yeah. generally pretty positive about this, aside from the fact that I like interrupted you a few times. I don't love that. Oh my God. I feel like I interrupted you and I don't love that either. You know, and it's also an ADHD thing. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> so I am not judging you at all. And I feel the same shame. Um, I also want to say, I really don't think you should feel anything negative about the story that you brought. Okay. Because did you did you know that like my background is as a therapist? I did know that. I listened okay. to I I only listened to one episode of the podcast, but it was Anna Dresden, and uh-huh. um, oh yeah, you talked a lot. You guys talked a lot about that, which I already knew. I think from Twitter, you you must put it out there somewhere, right? I put it I put it out there. I didn't use it yeah. to hide it. Um, weirdly, I guess shame related in a way because I felt like no one will take me serious as like a comedy writer if I'm like also a therapist. It's still my day job, you know. And then yeah. I was like, no, like I need to just like own it. It's it's a cool day job, actually. And whatever. yeah, absolutely. Um, but I bring it up now to say that like that, like I have heard s- such more intense, horrible things. Not that you can like, <laughs> not that you can quantif- <laughs> like quantify how terrible yeah, right. traumas are. But you know what I mean. It does as a therapist at yeah. all. Yeah, and, and I live for it. Like I I like love that you brought a really dark one. I okay. Really okay. Cool. Good. I was really yeah. trying to say what what has been shameful. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you feel right now, like having shared that story and like just being at the very end compared to how you felt at the beginning? I mean, you were well, kind of just thinking of that, but yeah, how I feel is interesting because you you brought up a new tiny shame about feelings, which is that I like I don't have it um, handy right now, but oftentimes I have to consult the feelings wheel to say something beyond good or bad, because I feel like I don't know a lot about feelings. <laughs> so um, <laughs> how, you know, I wish I could find it right now and be like, how do I feel good? Uh, why? You know, like go beyond just saying good. Um, you know what, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm gonna find the feelings wheel. I love um, it. I but overall, I do feel said. positive, probably relieved to a degree. Oh. Um, so at the center of the wheel is powerful, peaceful, sad, mad, scared, joyful. I'm going to go off peaceful, hmm. content, thoughtful, intimate, loving, trusting, nurturing. And we can go to thankful, secure, serene, responsive, pensive, or relaxed. I'm going to say that I feel overall relaxed and thankful for this opportunity Aww. to have spoken to you. That is so lovely. That makes me feel like sort of warm and cozy, which I really like. And I'm so grateful that you came on here. Thank you so much, Deanne. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shame Spiral. You can follow the pod at Pod Shame Spiral on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the usual places. This episode was edited by myself and Sarah Gabrielli. And original music was by Shadwick Wild. Please keep listening and rate and review if you're feeling generous. I have so many exciting guests lined up for our season. Thank you again for joining us and spiral on, but not too much, okay? <laughs>